We're going to stay in our, our study in 1 Corinthians, so why don't you get your Bibles out, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in a minute we're going to get started there. Uh, man, I, I don't know if, if many of you have gotten the chance over the years to get to know Jeff uh, or Erla on a personal level. Uh, man, I have just a, a huge appreciation for who they are as individuals, what they do, uh, the opportunities that I've had here at this church. Um, I got saved right over here, right around where PJ's sitting, and man, what a, what a blessing it is to have, you know, men of God bring you under their wing and teach you and train you and give you opportunities to, to stretch yourself and, and be challenged, and man, Jeff is one of those guys high up on my list of counselors that I go to on a regular basis, not just because we work in the same office, but because he's really, really good at counsel, right? He knows his stuff, and and if you know a good counselor, you know that, man, they often will ask more questions than make statements, right? A good counselor can ask you a question that brings you to the actual answer. And they know when, when you can get to the answer yourself, man, you're going to hang on to that answer because you got there, right? And so sometimes they know the answer right away, and they can tell you, and you'll walk away and ignore it, right? That's what we do. But if they can ask the questions in your mind and your heart can get there, you say, oh, wow, I think I realized something about myself, right? I think I realized what I needed to know. And Paul, this morning, we're going to see Paul was the master at this. We're going to read eight verses, and in these eight verses, there are nine question marks. Paul has some things to say to the Corinthian church, but he wants them to arrive at the conclusion. He wants them to realize what they've messed up in these instances, and he wants them to take ownership of it. All right, so go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 6 if you haven't already. We're going to start in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 8, and then we'll start digging into that study sheet that you got this morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall judge or shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong, and ye defraud, and that your brethren. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll start into your notes. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wise counsel of Paul. Thank you for these words that you have preserved for us so that we can ask these questions of ourselves. We can evaluate who we are in light of what you've given us and, and why we struggle with the things we struggle with. And, and you can help us find the answers. And we know that the answer is always in your word, Lord, and I just pray that you help, direct, help to direct us to that answer this morning. I pray that you would move me out of the way, that your word would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high, and we would be changed to be more like you. We love you so much. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we saw Paul 
He talked about judging a situation that required biblical separation. This week, the title's a, a simple title. It's, it's internal matters, right? Sometimes there's things going on that everybody needs to know about, and we need to separate ourselves from somebody who's, whose behavior is just out of control. Other times, life is just life, and we mess up. We sin, and, and we need to deal with those things privately, and that's what Paul's seeing here. He's seeing some internal matters, some disagreements that, that the church ought to be able to take care of, but they can't. So point one on our study this morning is just simply that, judging internal matters. All right, we've, we've already dealt with judging matters that require the whole body. These are, these are personal issues. These are small matters, that is what Paul calls it in, in another spot in this same passage. See, the beauty of the church is that everybody's invited, right? You, you can be man, woman, boy, or girl. You know, you can be type A personality. You can be really shy. You can be aggressive. You can want to hide in the back. You can have really bold opinions. You can just be quiet, right? It, 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 the beauty of the church is it's, it's for every personality. The, the thing that's ugly about the church is that it's for every personality, <laughs> right? And, and what... What makes life awesome is relationships. We just spent a, a long time talking about that in the well. And what makes life difficult is relationships. Right? People are so frustrating. <laughs> but people are so wonderful. Right? And so we've got to figure out, Paul's saying, look, you guys are you're butting heads over these issues, and I've got some problems with how you're carrying it out. So let's get to the, the issues here. If you've been around for a while, if you have friendships and relationships, you know what disagreements are about, right? You, you understand you've had some. So to understand Paul specifically what he's talking about, we need to understand three terms that he, he leaves here for us. We, we need to understand what judgment is. We need to understand who an unjust person is. And we need to understand who the saints are. If we can define these terms, if we can understand what he's talking about there, then we can understand why Paul is so upset about what this Corinthian church is doing. So what is judgment? We'll just ask some questions. We'll counsel ourselves here. What is judgment? If you look in the Bible or anywhere, you look in the dictionary, judgment is simply the ability to discern, right? Judging is simply measuring something against someone or against a, measuring something or someone against a standard, right? And making a determination. It's discernment, right? When when we get into trouble is, is when we set ourselves up as the standard by which we're judging and measuring everybody else, right? That's when we get in trouble, and rightfully so. We'll see in, in just a minute in Matthew chapter 7 that God's not okay with that either, right? The truth is that not everybody's good at judgment, right? The truth is that, that we have a book that's perfect judgment, but, but we fail often to go to it. And we judge based on our feelings, as, a side, as opposed to, to judging on what God says, as opposed to judging the perfect way, the righteous way. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5 says, Judge not that you be not judged. This world wants to quote that all the time, right? How many of you have ever heard somebody say, it, well, it's just not very Christian to judge? Well, if you do it immaturely, of course, right? It's actually not Christian to not judge, as you grow up and mature, you have to have discernment. You have to have the ability to take God's word and measure your life and the circumstances in your life and make wise decisions based on what God says. If you lack that, man, that's, that's an immature Christian. That's not okay with God either. He says, judge not that you be not judged. 
For with, that, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. It's coming right back to you. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? I don't know exactly what a mote is, but there's a, something in your brother's eye. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Right? How are you going to pick something out of somebody else's eye when there's something bigger in your own? Hypocrite, that's what he's saying. How wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote that is out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. It's possible there's nothing in his eye at all. It might just be me. God says, look, why don't you go to the mirror, his word is a mirror, and look at yourself. Before you cast judgment, cast it on yourself first. John chapter 7, verse 24 says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Well, how do we do that? John 8, 15 and 16 says, Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Not that way. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. So how is Christ judging? He's judging according to what his Father says. He ju- he's judging righteous judgment. John 5.30 says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Christ's judgment is righteous and perfect and true because he aligns it with the word of God. He aligns it with the will of his Father, which is always found in the word of God. So the first thing we see is judgment is the ability to discern. The second thing that judgment is, and and not all of us are assigned the authority of this role, but there's a responsibility to deliver deliver punishment or reward, right? And if you're going to have the responsibility to deliver punishment or reward, you better have that first definition of judgment. You better have the ability to discern. You better have the book that gives you the ability to discern, Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4 says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. Okay, if he's just making discernments, if he's just deciding what is right and wrong and not actually carrying anything out, how's he helping anybody? He has the authority to carry out the judgment, the next step. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Right? If you've been given that authority to carry out the judgment, you better know what you're doing first. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Christ, obviously, is the ultimate judge. He's going to judge. And those of us who already believe in him, those of us who already have a relationship with him, we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to answer for what we've done with the blessings that he's given us. And he says we will receive of the things that we've done in this body. All right, so that's judgment. We have to have it. Letter B, what makes someone unjust? We've got to understand who he's talking about because he compares this unjust with saints. So who, who are the unjust? Proverbs 11 says, When a wicked man dieth, 
his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. So the hope of an unjust man is matched with a wicked man. There, there is no hope in a wicked man because there is no relationship to Christ. We'll see that in a little bit. Luke chapter 18, verse 2. Christ is uh, sharing a parable here. He says, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. We're not concerned about the details of this story specifically, but we've got a judge who does not fear God. What does God call him? Unjust. He is incapable of judging righteous judgment. He is unjust because he doesn't believe, he doesn't fear God, he doesn't follow God's standard. God says that man is unjust. And he may have done the right thing, he may have stumbled on the right thing, but the reason he did it was because this woman was annoying. And that's not good enough for God. That's not doing the right thing for the right reason. Christ's definition of not fearing God is, is no justice. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. We just got a massive contrast there. The godly, he's going he's gonna to protect. The unjust are the opposite. And he's reserving them for punishment. He's separated them. So it's pretty obvious you don't want to be in that category. You don't want to be considered unjust by God. You don't want to, to have the end result of somebody who is unjust. So how... Or what makes someone just? That's the next question we need to answer. And the first blank that you have under letter C is, we are justified by grace. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 28. There's a lot, of, a lot of information here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, all right? The law, what he's talking about here is the things that you do to, to accumulate righteousness, your works, your flesh, your own abilities will never measure up and, and accomplish for you being justified. He says only grace can do that. If you look in verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The best we can pull off is falling short. But verse 24, thank the Lord, he keeps talking. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The grace is the fact that Christ knew that your works fell short. And he knew that you were going to be judged, and I was going to be judged based upon our works that fall short. And he stood in our place, he stepped in, and he took the punishment that we were going to get. Amen. 
Because we fell short, we were going to get punishment. He stepped right in our place, and that is grace. And we are justified by that. The second thing we we see is, is that we're justified by faith. We can see the end of this same passage. He says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The law was just there to point out how flawed we are. You can't do it. There's too many rules. There's too many hoops. There's too many restrictions and requirements. I always fall short. God says, yeah, that's what it's there for. I'm glad you figured that out. Because you're not justified by that. You're justified by grace. And you're justified by faith. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by his blood. Romans 5, 9, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Again, a connection to grace. The fact that he put himself in our place and shed his perfect blood on our behalf. Justified in his name. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you. Next week, Jeff's going to go through this long, nasty list of ugly sins that these guys were involved in. And he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed. You're clean now. But ye are sanctified. I've set you apart from those things. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we, we, we quote this verse all the time. This is salvation. This is how we get it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not your works, right? It's not the law. It is the gift of God. It is grace. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. If, if you could do it, you know yourself, you know how we work, we would take credit for it. And God says, I don't play that game. I don't work that way. This is not how it works. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's justification. It's through what he did. Believing his payment is enough, and his payment alone. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise from a God who cannot lie. It's connected to the name of Christ. In Acts 4.12, this is, this is just an awesome verse. Neither is there salvation in any other name. Any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Right? John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's one way to be justified, and it's through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that way alone. Romans 6, 7 says that we are freed instead of using this word justified. Revelation twenty two eleven 11 says we are righteous in place of this word justified, right? He's taken care of it. We need to trust on his works and not our own. So to be justified, it, it requires grace. He has already put that in place. To be justified, it requires faith, and that's on you. That's on us. It's not a work. It's, it's believing that his work is enough. It's, it's taking a step out in faith and saying, yes, I believe, 
What Jesus Christ did on the cross was for me, was enough for me, and I want him to be my Lord. It's belief in your heart and confession with your mouth. So who are the saints? Our last question here. First of all, a saint, it's not something mystical. It's, it's not a, a statue. It's not a lawn ornament. It's not a dashboard decoration or even a necklace or anything. like. It's not, it's not a charm, right? He defines a saint completely different. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both heirs, or both theirs and ours. And that sounds a whole lot like being justified. That sounds like what we just defined, doesn't it? It's because that's exactly what it is. Paul says if, if you're part of the church, truly part of the church, born again, he says those sanctified by Jesus Christ are called saints. Those who are truly part of the church are called saints. Those that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are saints. That's the definition. There's, there's no qualifiers. You don't have to perform any miracles. You don't need approval of the Pope. You need to be born again in Jesus Christ through faith. So, modestly, you can say, I'm a saint. And people may look at you weird. And then you can take them to these verses and you may be able to lead them to Christ. Amen. Philippians 4.21 says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. You know what he's saying? The brothers here say hi to the brothers there. The saints here say hi to the saints there. We're the same. We're in Christ. He's defining it for you. And probably the best definition is right here in 1 Corinthians 6, where we just were, where we've been already. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, saints, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He just defined it for us. We didn't even have to go anywhere else, but, it, but it's more fun to. All right, so the, the saints shall judge the world. You are the ones who are going to judge the world. Well, I, phew, I didn't even know that I was a saint. I mean, you know, I pulled that off, and, you know. No, it's... It's being in Christ. We're identified with him. So Paul's coming down on this church for taking matters to the unsaved world. We've been born again. We have Jesus Christ. We have the answer to all of our problems. Can you help us solve all of our problems? He says it doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? He's upset because they're, they're taking matters that should be solvable within the house out to somebody else. There was a couple of brothers that... Uh, went to grade school with, nobody messed with these guys. They were, they were scrappers, right? And, and if there was nobody else to fight, they'd be fighting each other in the front lawn of the school. It didn't make any sense. But the brothers were dealing with things in-house, even if in-house was in the front lawn <laughs> of the school. They, they dealt with their issues because they were family. And if anybody stepped in on either side, both of them would turn against you because they're family, right? You just got to take care of your own stuff is what he's saying. So what are, their, what are our qualifications to judge? If we're supposed to be taking care of these in-house matters, these internal matters, what are our qualifications? Number two is judging eternal matters. Paul says, he asks two questions, don't you know that we're going to judge the world? Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? That's your qualifications. 
So in, in Scripture, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of, of judgments. All through the Old Testament, you know, somebody's messing up, they're getting judgment. The nation of Israel has multiple judgments where they're placed in, in slavery. Um, but when we get to the New Testament, we get to Christ, we see seven major judgments. Right? There's seven major judgments that, that go on, and, and we've, we've taught classes on this. But we see the first judgment, what we already talked about. Christ taking our sins on himself and being judged at Calvary. Right? Taking that to the grave and judging it once for all. There's us judging ourselves as we walk with Christ and mature and grow and hold ourselves accountable to what he says. And, and he holds us accountable as well. And then there's the judgment seat of Christ that we already talked about where we have to answer to him for what we've done and how we've responded to him in this life. And then during the, the tribulation after that is the judgment of the Jews. At the end of the tribulation is the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the whole world, and how they treated the Jews. They're going to answer for that, right? Then there's the judgment of Satan. There's the, the great white throne judgment is the final judgment. Anybody that didn't fall into some category somewhere before this time falls into that category, and they will receive their final judgment. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians is Paul is indicating that we're going to be involved in a whole bunch of these. Right? Some of them, from we're being judged, we're on that side of it. There's other ones, he says, we're going to be on the side where we're, we're making some decisions. We have to have some discernment to be able to, to, to be there with Christ, and, and we're not just making decisions, we're handing out some of this punishment. A pretty incredible requirement. So letter A, we shall judge the world. He says that in verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 talks about a time in the, the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. He says, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. That's a fact. If you've given him your life, he says, you're going to live with me forever. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. That means you lose your rewards. You lose the ability to reign or some capacity to reign with him in the millennium. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6 talks about this same thing. and It says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Right? He washed us from our sins. And hath made us, verse 6, kings and priests unto God and his Father. We see it again in Revelation 5.10. He says, He has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We're going to have positions of authority. We're going to be governing the rest of the world. We're going to have to be able to judge. We're going to have to have some incredible discernment. Luckily, we'll have some improved bodies by that time. We won't be distracted by that bum knee. You know, it, it's, it's going to be better. We'll be able to, to focus a little better. We don't have time for it, but, but Revelation chapter 20 talks about the thrones and they that sat upon them and, and those who were given the ability to judge during this time. If we look at another passage, we see in Daniel chapter 7, we definitely don't have time to read all of this, but it, it'll be on the screen. and uh, I've got it on your sheet so you can look it up. Daniel chapter 7, it starts off, we read the first verse, it says, And a fiery stream issued, issued and came forth from before him. 
Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now this is a reference to the final great white throne judgment, where he's opening the books, he's seeing whose name is written, and whose name is not, and, and fire comes out of God, and he judges mankind. One last time. So Daniel's seeing this vision, and there's all kinds of other details if you read the rest of this passage, and Daniel says, basically, uh, I don't understand. You're going you're gonna to have to fill me in on some of these details. So the angel starts filling Daniel in, and he takes him all the way back to the second coming of Christ, which is before the millennium, which we just saw, where we're going to be reigning. Right? So before that, there's going to be this, this uh, event happening where Christ returns. If we jump down to verse 21, he says, I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given unto the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, these are, these are tribulation saints. These are not us. We're gone by this time. But if we look at this same event from another perspective, if we look at it from Revelation chapter 19, we'll see where we fall in. Revelation 19, 11 through 14, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in, fire, or in fine linen, white and clean. And that is where we come in, Right? There are saints on the earth that have made it through the tribulation, most likely all Jews, right? Many other, uh, everybody else, you know, if, if they listen to the message of the Jews, they made it through. And, and the saints are being pressured and, and attacked and, and forced into the wilderness by, the, by Satan, by the Antichrist. And he says, there's a turning point where I give them judgment and they can fight back. The turning point is when Christ hits the earth and we're following, handing out judgment. It's, it's a great war, right? It's when Christ returns and he, he locks Satan away for a thousand years. So we get to be part of that judgment. Christ is obviously the judge carrying out the judgment. We get to be there. We get to help whatever capacity that is. We get to be here during the millennium sitting on thrones, reigning and ruling and deciding who, who's obeying, who's not obeying. We get to hand out judgment. And then 10,000, thousands that he talked about in Daniel chapter 7, we get to at least be present while Christ is handing out the final judgment to everybody else that falls in whatever other category. Right? So maybe that's not us judging there, but we get to be present. Maybe we get to be a witness. Kind of like we are now, but there's hope now. Right? There's still hope right now. So the second thing, the second qualification that we have, we're going to be judging the world. The second thing he said was we're going to be judging angels. We shall judge angels. So there just happened to be, if you were in the, the 9 a.m. class this morning, we talked about these same angels. There just happened to be some angels that have been reserved in chains waiting their judgment. Right? Jude chapter 1, verse 6 says, The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. 
he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto judgment of the great day. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. All right, so Paul says we're going to judge angels. There just happen to be this group of angels that's just waiting for a good judgment, right? Sitting in darkness. And the connection is, is to Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God, who are angels, decided to leave their first estate, what they were created to do, who they were created to be, and they decided to make babies with women, mankind. And it says in, in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. It's not because they had really good food. He says, and also after that, when the sons of God, the angels, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. What was going on is God promised to deliver mankind through a child, through mankind. So how does Satan mess that plan up? Well, I'll send angels in to corrupt the bloodline to mess up God's plan so that it can't happen. God is upset with mankind because of their failure. He's upset with these angels because of their failure. He floods the earth, and at the same time, apparently, puts these angels in chains, maybe in the bottom of the sea at the time of the great flood. I don't know. Sound like a good place for him, I guess. It says it's darkness. I, I can't think of a place any darker. Romans 1 25 and 26 says, Who hath changed the truth of God into a lie, and worship and serve the creature more than the creator? This is obviously talking about man's sins in this passage, but this is the same thing that these angels did. They said, forget about God and what he's created us to do. I, I want her. I want the creation more than I want the creator. And that is always a recipe for moral decline. He says, Serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's the exact same thing that the angels did. They went after their own desires before God's desires. And he says that's, that is rapid moral decline. And, and if you were in the class this morning, we saw that everything that mankind was doing at that time was wicked and evil, and that's why God had to start it over. That's why he judged it. So, it's interesting to me. Why, why us? Why do we get to be the ones to judge angels? It doesn't specifically say, but I think it's pretty interesting that, that believers in Christ were physical beings that started out rebellious, but we turned unto God. We're going to get to judge these perfect spiritual beings. They were perfect, but they turned away from God. We began rebellious and turned to God. They started with God and turned away in rebellion. I think that's the perfect opportunity for him to say, in your face. These guys didn't even see me. They had a book, and they chose me. You had me, and you chose you. Let us see, we should... Judge ourselves. If, if we're going to have the responsibility of judging this world, if we're going to have the responsibility of judging angels, man, we ought to be able to handle our own stuff. Right? We ought to be able to judge ourselves. Individual matters. You ought to be able to handle those things. 
And if not, we've got leaders who have the responsibility of helping you. 1 Corinthians 6, 4, our passage, he says, if then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but that's some sweet sarcasm right there. I'm not sure you caught that, but this is the only time Paul says, why don't you just take anybody and let them make the really important decisions? Right? Everywhere else we see the things that, that Scripture is laying out for us, that's not the case. This is sarcasm. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 5 is, is where we see the, the choosing of the deacons. In those days there were, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, so there's, there's people being added to the church every single day. It's growing like crazy. And, and anytime something grows faster than you're equipped to handle, things get a little bit shaky, right? And, and, and what happened was, it says there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. All right, so, so there's complaining, there's, there's conflict. Welcome to humanity, right? Welcome to friendships and, and the church. There's disagreements, it happens. Verse two, then the, the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. If, if we stop studying God's word and leading you just to solve all your problems, this is gonna get really messy really quick. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Right? Who, who out there is qualified? He didn't say, go out and pick um, seven guys that show up some of the time those least esteemed. Just get those guys and, and let them make all the decisions. No, he said, those full of the Holy Ghost, that's controlled and led by the Holy Ghost, according to God's word, of honest report. How do you know they're honest? You've seen their life. They've proven it. It's, honesty is, is a repetitious thing. If somebody's a liar, it's because they lie all the time. If somebody's honest, it's because they're always honest. And they lie once, now they're, oh, I don't know what they are. No, they, they've established that they're honest. Not that they're the least esteemed. So deacons are not men lowly regarded. They're proven and qualified leaders. 1 Timothy 3.6 says they're not a novice. Not a beginner, not new to this thing. 1 Timothy 3.8 and 10, verse 10 specifically. He says, let these also first be what? Proved. There's a proving there's a process. These guys have to be qualified to make discernments, to make decisions. There's murmuring in the church. Who should do it? Ah, just get any least esteemed brother. Just get anybody. Oh, you're new here? Do you want to be involved? No. It's, it's an established, proven leader. And the other reason I know this is sarcasm, because he follows it up with verse 5. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? Paul's saying, look, if you're all incapable of, of discernment, if you just can't do this, just find anybody. Make sure they're saved, they're a brother. They're bound to come up with a better solution than taking this to court, to the lost, unjust judgment of this world. They're bound to stumble on some answer if they just open the book. Shame on you. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. You ever heard that? <laughs> I used to hear that when I was a kid. Because <laughs> I was. You know things 
the crazy thing about this passage is that Paul is just now, just now, leaving the on-ramp, and he's on to the real issue of what's going on. He's been talking about these small matters. Look, if you're going to judge angels, if you're going to judge the whole world, the things that you're dealing with now, these temporary things, those are small matters. It reminds me of the old people's court. You, remember, you guys ever see that show? Old Judge Wapner or whatever his name was. You know, those people just wanted to be on TV. But, you know, old Sally over here, she promised me money, and, and she never came through, so I want that money. So I'm going to go on TV and, and demand it. Foolishness, right? I think that's what Paul would have used as a comparison. You guys, you guys are like in front of Judge Wapner here. This is stupid. What is wrong with you? You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And you ought to be able to judge, number three, what really matters. We ought to have the discernment because of what we're going to do someday. We ought to be able to have the discernment to know what actually matters for us today. We shouldn't be distracted by all these little things in life. Little things in life are going to happen. Disagreements are going to be able to, they're, they're just a part of it. But you ought to be able to handle it. You ought to be able to discern that those things are just a distraction from what really matters. Verses 7 and 8 of our, seven and eight of our passage he says, now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Now you do wrong, and you defraud, and that your brethren. He's saying, look, you're not even, you're not even okay with just having the odds even. You're taking advantage of your brethren. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And then he reminds them in that, if you didn't catch it, that we're called to suffering. Nobody called you to be right. Jesus didn't say, I, want, I died on this cross for you so that you can always be right and demand justice today. So that you can be vindicated when somebody looks at you wrong. We're like the NBA of Christianity. <laughs> somebody touches me and I flop on the ground and cry foul. I mean, come on. That's what we are. It's ridiculous. And that's what we are. Look at society today. Everybody has a right. Everybody has rights, and you don't have the right to violate my rights. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is... A really high calling. No, he says, this is your reasonable service. This is what Christ expects out of you when you said, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to call the shots. I want you to be the man, and I'm just going to follow what you say to do. As long as it makes me feel good. Never in there. He says, that is your reasonable service. That is what you're called to. That is just part of the deal. In the Gospels, we're told to follow Christ. It means to pick up our cross. Paul said, I die daily. He wasn't talking about a physical death, was he? But he was talking about physically putting himself second and Christ first. 1 Peter 3, 9, not rendering evil for evil. Well, you don't understand what they did to me. They deserve this. 
or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereto or thereunto called. What are we called to? Taking it. Well, that's, that stinks. I wish I'd known that ahead of time. Look, God is not interested in you suffering. He's not, he's not looking to torture you. He's not looking to see you struggle, wanting to see you struggle. What he wants is for those people around you in your world to see him in your struggle. He is the answer. And he wants you to start living like it. Life's got problems no matter whether, whether you have Christ or don't. If you have him, you have the solution. Paul's saying, why don't you start living like it? Why don't you start living like you actually have the answer you claim to have? Why don't you start tapping into Christ? He's available. Romans 12, later on in verse 17, he says, Recompense or return to man, to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible. Check this phrase out. As much as lieth in you. How many of you have ever actually given that much effort to resolving an issue? Can you claim to say, well, I'm at the end of my rope. Well, how are you at the end of your rope? Well, as much as lieth within me, I have given everything. Some of you guys gave everything to camp this week, and, and you're doing awesome that your eyes are open right now. Did you, did you actually give that much effort to resolving an issue? A small matter? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, he's talking about an employee-employer relationship here. This is not slavery. He says, servants and masters, right? So be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, not, the good, not just the good bosses, but also to the froward or the evil. If you've ever had a bad boss, you understand what he's talking about. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? Look, if you do something wrong and you take it patiently when you get punished, he says, good, you ought to do that. I'm not giving you a pat on the back for that one. That's what you should do. He says, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He took it. And I don't know if you're paying attention, but aren't you glad he took it? Because if he didn't, we don't have a chance. He says there, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. We went to the beach a couple of years ago, and, you know, I'm walking, carrying all the stuff out, and I noticed behind me, one of, one of the kids, it was either Lila or Weston, is, is kind of hopping in my, my footprints, right? And as they, they grow up and they get a little taller, it's going to take less effort. And some people might even say, they walk just like their dad. Some people might even mistake you for walking like your Savior. If you just take it the right way. 
if you're able to just be reviled and not revile in return. If you're able to be focused on what's right and what's most important and not have to be right. How many of you have ever improved your relationships by always being right? Proverbs 20, 22 says, Say not thou, I will recompense, I will return evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. Just let him take care of it. 1 Thessalonians 5, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye get even one with another. That's how they'll know. No, if, if you have love one for another. Christ's definition of love was to put himself last. Why do we always find ourselves putting ourselves first? Why is that the case? Letter B, he called them out for selfishness. We've been called unto sacrifice. He called them out for their selfishness. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 6 through 8 says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. For if God hath not called us, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, check this out, this is hard. He that despiseth his brethren is the context, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. You know what he says? You got a problem with that brother, and you won't take care of it because of what he did, so you're justified in holding on to it? You got a problem with me. That's what he's saying. Your issue is not with him, because I forgave you of everything that you have done, past, present, and future. But you're going to hold a grudge? Are you kidding me? So you don't understand what I gave you. That's what he's saying. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, it talks about the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. The Laodiceans is, is this church age that we live in. It's NBA Christianity. It's the rights of the people is what that word means, Laodicea. You can't even, I, I hate Facebook. I mean, it's cool on the surface where you can see what's going on in people's lives, but if you go one layer deeper and see the opinions of people's lives, everybody's right, and everybody's a jerk. It's not okay. It's because we live in a day and age where we're right, and we deserve to be right. He says in Revelation 3, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know what that is? You know what that leads to? That leads to entitlement. We're spoiled rich kids who believe that nobody should ever touch or take anything from us. It's okay for little kids to learn hard lessons, but now I'm an adult, life ought to be easy. I've put my time in. I deserve. It's all about me. He says, no, you're wretched. And if you know anybody like that, they are miserable to be around. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. 
That's what entitlement gets you. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8, he says, Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. We're going to have positions of royalty. We're going to sit on thrones. We're going to have the opportunity to judge. But for now, we don't have a throne. We have a cross. And he says we're supposed to pick that up and carry it. How are you going to put it on somebody else when it's your job to carry it? How are you going to demand to be served? And the last thing that we see is that we have been called on for reconciliation. Now we understand that, that Christ is the one who reconciles. But check this out. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Right? You were unjust, but all things have become new. You're now justified. You're a new creature. And how did that happen? All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That means to bring two things together. Remember we said the wages, of, or the, we're all sinners and we've fallen short. We've all fallen short. We, we, we've got a gap between us and God because our works just don't get us there. He took care of the gap. He reconciled. He brought us the rest of the way. And he hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, not counting it against them because Christ, Christ took it for himself and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. We have been called on to be a part of the solution for everybody that we know that does not yet know the answer. Those people are in your life because they need to be reconciled with God. And he's asking you to be the one to deliver the word of reconciliation. We talked about judgments. And I don't know anybody in here that truly knows Jesus Christ that would be okay with their friends and loved ones standing at any of those other judgments aside from the judgment seat of Christ. We need to be the ministers of reconciliation. We need to take it seriously. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're here today, and I talked about being justified versus being unjust, and you know in your heart, I think I'm considered unjust. I think I'm going to fall on the wrong side of judgment. You can be today. He says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you make him your Lord, he says, today is the day of salvation. You call upon his name, and today, 
is a new eternity for you. Today, you are a new creature in Christ. It takes his grace, which he's already provided. It takes your faith. Are you going to step out and trust him? He's waiting for you. Let's go ahead and pray.